Moxa works on a completely different level in the body, if you were to think of it in a Western medical way, than acupuncture does. So acupuncture, we're really working with nerve pain responses. When we insert, even if there isn't pain with insertion, it's a nerve response helping the body to go from flight and fight into rest and relaxation. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. As is usually the case, the first of what turns out to be a series of movies is usually the best, unless it's Star Wars, in which case, good luck beating The Empire Strikes Back. I loved the first of the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Captain Jack Sparrow is my kind of pirate completely congruent with his lopsided wobble that we all have if you take a look close enough, and with a good dose of that madman mystic who seems perfectly fine and capable in whatever present moment he happens to find himself in. But even Captain Jack Sparrow finds that the direction of his true heart's calling, it's a mystery. And that's why he has a charmed device for navigation, a compass, one that points in the direction of his true calling and desire. We are such mysteries to ourselves. Who wouldn't want a compass that unerringly points you to the true north that your heart shen wants to go? There is an idea that tags along with Chinese medicine that we have a ming, a life, and beyond that, a destiny. In fact, in Chinese ming, it's the same character. Let's pause for a moment and consider this. Life, destiny, yeah, it's the same character. And this is where I want to be really careful because it's easy to overlay what I think in English on the Chinese here. It's inviting to riff poetically and perhaps a bit on the mythic about what it means that Ming means both life and destiny. Destiny. I want to pause for a second and invite you to consider for yourself what that means. Destiny. Is it a possibility that could arise depending on how you engage the opportunities of your life? Is it an already circumscribed outcome that you can't help but wander toward? Is it mutable or fixed? Predestined or predilection? Destiny. It sounds a lot like fate, which is another way that Chinese and English can easily misunderstand one another. In English, fate rather rhymes with doomed or predestined, while in Chinese, yuan fun, it's closer to opportunity meets willingness. There is a blend of agency and fleeting potent moment. But Back to Captain Jack Sparrow's compass, the one that points in the direction of his true desire. I bring it up because I'm so enamored with Captain Jack's capacity to recognize that his present conditions and circumstances are a fleeting moment in the vast tides and currents. They are nothing more than traces of wind on the water when you trust in what guides you to your Ming. So, destiny. Do you even need to work at it? Or is it a particularly pivotal moment created as a possibility, but then you need the commitment of a choice that allows you to live into that potential? Does that make sense? And if it does, what would you name that which allows you 
to unfold the possibilities of your Ming. I've got a friend who says her hunches always work out. They might need months or even years to work out. And there are times when it seems things are going in the wrong direction, but in the long run, it works out. In this conversation with Maya Suzuki, we hear about her desire to learn acupuncture at an early age and did eventually, but it was a longer and more securitous route. And it also took her through becoming fluent in Japanese, which in turn opened the possibility for a more traditional way of learning the medicine. We're going to get into all of that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. 
And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. Hi there. I'm Lisa Lapwing, and I'm super excited to be back on Shop Talk. In today's edition, I'm offering you pertinent questions I ask my male patients outside of our traditional 16. These questions are specific to the male physique and will provide you with valuable information to help you better understand what their body is doing so that you can make a clear differential diagnosis and appropriate treatment plan. These questions become important to ask when assessing patients who have come to you with conditions such as erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, BPH, prostatitis, or other andrological-related issues. So you still want to be sure you take a clear history and background from these patients, asking them the traditional 16 questions. And we're going to use those in addition to these questions to create a well-rounded, comprehensive understanding of what these patients have going on. Before we jump into these questions, you need to understand that you have to be comfortable using specific terminology related to the male physique. If you're not quite comfortable using words such as penis, ejaculate, erections, prostate, intercourse, I highly recommend you practice with someone you are comfortable with. It can be hard at first to use some of this terminology, but the more you use it and the more you maintain your professionalism while you use these words, the easier it will become to ask these questions with confidence and poise. That will reassure your patient that you're professional and make them feel really good, comfortable, and confident with you. This is a sensitive subject. We really want to create some strong rapport with our patients. So let's dive into these questions. Important questions are, how often do you get erections? How often do you get morning or overnight erections? What is the quality of your erections? 
you can give them options on a percentage scale. Is it 30% of what it used to be? 50, 90? What is the quality of their erections? Are you able to have an erection to completion? That is, are your patients able to maintain an erection through to orgasm and ejaculation? Is there a difference in your erections between penis and vagina sex, oral sex, or masturbation? This question can give you a lot of information about their hormonal cascade based on what stimulates them. One of my other questions I always ask is, do you have pain with erections? I personally see a lot of patients for chronic pelvic, penis, perineum, and testicle pain. So it's a very important question to ask if you're seeing someone with any of these conditions. So of course, then I also ask if they have pain in the perineum, in the testicles, or in the scrotum, in the pelvis. Patients don't always understand the pelvis. That could be the pelvic bowl. It could be the hips. It could be the perineum. It could be more towards the abdomen. It could be more towards the back. So if they aren't quite clear, you can help by spelling it out for them that this is where the pain could manifest in these areas of the lower body. Another really important question to ask is, have they been given a diagnosis? Often patients who are coming to you for these conditions have already seen a urologist, and it can be really helpful to know what diagnosis they were given if they were given one. And if not, I do suggest at some point they do see a specialist because a specific diagnosis can help you hone your treatment later on. Also ask your patients if they know what level their testosterone or PSA are at. And the answers to these questions become important if you're treating such conditions like BPH or prostate cancer. If you have a patient who has prostate cancer in their family history, PSA is something I suggest you recommend to them they keep an eye on. Another important question is what is the color, smell, or consistency of the ejaculate? The answer to this question can tell us if there's possible prostatitis infection there. Another important question is, has any of the above changed recently? Has it always been out of the normal or have you noticed recent shifts, pain that wasn't there before, discoloration that wasn't there before? You were getting nighttime erections, but now you're not. So you kind of want to jump back in with them and ask if any of these changes have happened in the last few weeks to the last three months. Look for patterns there. I also ask about discoloration, bumps, tender spots on the penis, testicles, or perineum. This, again, can lead us to possible diagnoses as far as varicose seals, which is a varicose vein in the testicle, possible prostate cancer. So it's a really important question to include in your interview. You also want to know how many times a week does your patient ejaculate. 
if it's excessive or if they're ejaculate withholding, that's going to also give us a clearer picture to what's happening on a deeper level of the body. You want to ask them if they have had prostate stimulation or massage recently. Could that be the cause of something, pain or a change in sensation around that area? You also want to be sure to ask them if they have pain during or post-orgasm. You want to ask if they have sustained injury to the genitals, to their spine, or to their hips. You think that this would be an obvious question that patients would answer, but believe it or not, patients are not always going to associate a back injury to dysfunction of their genitals. So it's up to us to do our investigative duties and find out if this could be contributing to their issue. This is a difficult question to ask, and you may not want to ask it in your first interview with your patient. It may come along a little bit later. They may also check a box in your paperwork about it rather than openly give you this information. At some point, if the information isn't readily given to you, I think it's very important to ask your patients if they have a history of sexual abuse. Now, you don't need to go into detail about them with that. If they offer it, okay, great. But unless therapy is in your scope of practice, just even knowing that they have a history of sexual abuse can help me formulate a diagnosis and treatment plan without knowing some of the upsetting details. Now, if they offer that up to you, okay, I want to say great, even though this isn't a subject we want the word great surrounding, but the details can, again, give you information on some of the psychological effects that they're dealing with that could be affecting their body. And just remember to remain compassionate, open, and empathetic. It's a hard subject to approach. And I will tell you, I have seen a large male population who has had sexual abuse in their past, and that is why they have come to me with various things like ED, premature ejaculation, pain in the penis and pelvis, and so forth. So it's out there. So if you choose to treat these things, chances are you're going to see it. One of my final questions I ask is, do you engage in sexual activity outside of what we would consider normal penis and vagina, oral sex, or masturbation? So this could be anal sex. This could be things where patients are using some sort of BDSM. So there could be a little bit more um, aggressive treatment of their bodies during sexual encounters. So that too will give you some information on how to treat their bodies. Again, it can be hard to approach patients with some of these questions at first, but you can always talk to yourself in a mirror, ask, you know, a peer, a counterpart, another acupuncturist to get comfortable and really take a thorough look at the answers to these questions, as well as your basic questions you're going to ask them. I want to make note that that also means it's really important to ask about their urinary habits, their bowel movements, because those things as well are going to affect the genital region. I've seen if patients have constipation, chronic, it can show up as pelvic pain or pain in the penis or testicles. And 
they haven't mentioned that because they don't make the association. So I'm struggling. Like, why can't we nail this down? And then out of the blue one day, they're like, oh, yeah, well, I have chronic constipation. It's like, oh, okay. I asked you about that. You said no, but here we are. So the point of that, too, is keep checking back in, especially if you're treating a patient for something like ED. You want to continuously ask how often they're getting erections, how those erections that maybe were missing overnight started showing back up again. What is the quality? Have we gone from 30%? Are we creeping up? Are we now at 40, 50% quality of erections through our treatment and or herbal program? So just like our other questions, we put everything together. We get this big holistic scope we keep asking these questions, right? So we can properly track our patient's progress and hopefully they're getting better. So when they are able to report to you, yes, this is getting better, that's encouraging for patient and practitioner. So those are my important 20 questions when you pull them apart to include into your patient intake interview when you're first seeing patients for common male andrological issues. Some of them I mentioned you may not want to spring on your patients that first appointment, but work them in as you get to know your patient better. For more in-depth understanding on common men's health conditions, you can take one of my courses. I will have information on my upcoming courses on my blog at whole-healthacupuncture.com slash blog. Currently, I have the date of 10-7-23, Saturday the 7th of October, set for my course, BPH, and how to successfully treat it using TCM principles. The fantastic Florida State Oriental Medical Association will be hosting me, and as soon as I have the link to that class, I will put it up on my blog so you can sign up for it, or you can contact me directly. I also offer consultation services, and I'm always here to just talk to other practitioners about this subject. I'm super passionate about it. You may have heard my geological episode with Michael Max talking BPH. I don't think there's enough education out there about it. I'm working to change that, so you guys can reach out to me anytime. I thank Michael Max for allowing me to be here, do my thing again, and I thank you all for listening and being a fantastic practitioners of our beautiful medicine and art. Maya Suzuki, welcome to Geological. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Delighted that you were here. I'm, you know, I'm always curious about how people got into this stuff, you know, this East Asian medicine. You know, especially for like Americanskis grew up here on the continent. Like, how did you wander? Your, you you spent a little time in Japan. How did you wander your way over there? Well, do you want the short version or the long version of that story? I want whatever version you like to tell. Well, um, I kind of knew I wanted to be in this medicine since a really young age. How young is young? Uh, around eight or nine. So I was born cross-eyed and had a lot of cosmetic surgeries to try to fix my eyes so they were um, cosmetically straight. And because of those, probably I had a lot of migraines as a kid. And it was one of the few times that my good Jewish mother didn't try to give me medication, but instead um, she did uh, acupressure on LI4. And it was 
absolutely amazing to me that putting pressure on your hand could fix you. And so around eight or nine, I stole her book. I still have never read the book. I've, I studied the pictures and would do acupressure on everybody who would let me and try to guess what was wrong with them. I was a really weird kid. And then eventually my dad met um, the clinic director of the school downtown who invited me to come get a treatment there. And I did. And I was like, you know, screw acupressure, acupuncture is where it's at. Um, and I was about 15, 16 at the time. And I was just about, I graduated high school early and I was going to go straight into acupuncture school. And my good Jewish mother again was like, all right, that's good and dandy. Let's go get, have you get a real degree first. And then you can go do this acupuncture thing, you know? And um, so I did, and I got a degree in Japanese and moved to Japan through that. And I just, I knew that if I went in acupuncture, I wouldn't do anything else. So I played a lot. You weren't going to come back. Yeah, there was no coming back from acupuncture. Once you go, you're not coming back. No, and um, <laughs> I, I did a lot of odd jobs in Japan. I worked for their government. I was an English teacher. I did a lot of different things. And then I had a, a really bad job that uh, drove me into a pretty deep depression. And at the same time, I had convinced my husband's friend to become an acupuncturist, and he went for it. And I got really pissed off. <laughs> and I was like, you know, you're stealing my dream. You weren't supposed to take my advice. And so I actually, um, I was like, that's it. I'm going to do it. And my husband, then boyfriend was like, well, why don't you go and get a job at a clinic and work 40 hours a week for a year and make sure this is something you really want to do before you spend that much money. He sounds like a nice, good Jewish mother. <laughs> they actually match well. Yeah. So I took his advice and I went to a clinic in Japan called Acura Acupuncture Clinic. And I told Dr. Taikenjo, I said, hey, look, I will clean your toilets for free if you just let me watch. And he agreed. He thought it was a great deal. And so I worked as much as he would let me for months until I got like, you know, $1.50 an hour. I got train fare and I was like, oh my God, I'm getting paid to do this. And eventually they helped me get into acupuncture school. The assistants and practitioners school helped me write my essays and prepare me to get into school and all of that. And went to acupuncture school there while I was working at Acura on and off. Yeah, in Japan. I went to a school called Toyoshinkyu Senmongako, which is in um, right near Shinjuku. It's in a station called Shinokubo in Tokyo. Yeah. And I kept working there at Akira. In the meantime, I found the, the group that I currently practice, the style called Iyashinomichi, and got licensed in Japan, worked in Japan as a practitioner, uh, and then through a series of events, mainly Fukushima power plants explosion, kind of initiated the beginning of our move back to the U.S. So we moved back to the U.S. 2015. It took me about three years to transfer my license to the U.S. And when I moved back, I had to go to school here again, get my license here in the U.S. again, so take all the national Did, did you have to go through the entire schooling again to do it? Oh, thank God, no. <laughs> thank God. I ended up having to take two semesters, um, oddly enough, mostly clinical hours because um, I didn't have enough supervised clinical hours for NCCOM's requirements, uh, which is odd because I had 10 years of clinical experience before I went to school. But uh, yeah, but it but it wasn't supervised. And gosh, darn it. Anyway, you weren't doing it in English. So you probably had to brush up your English a little bit. Actually, so medical English, it was really hard, actually, initially, most of my well, definitely, you know, everything to do with acupuncture, but biology, anatomy, physiology, all of that I learned in Japanese. 
not in English. So, so I've got a question for you. When you first started practicing it in English, was it a little tricky because you didn't learn it or think it in English? Was it tricky doing East Asian medicine in English when you first started doing it that way? So I actually, when I was in Japan, the clinic I worked at was, um, we had 70% fertility, 30% expat community. So I had, I still had already had practiced working with patients in English. What was really difficult for me was having conversations with people like yourselves who are East Asian practitioners who have a TCM language that they speak in. And I don't know if you're familiar at all, but Japanese acupuncture does not exactly think or speak in the same way that TCM does. It's a little different. They're like cousins from different, you know, counties. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, there's still places where I can't translate what I'm seeing in the client into that TCM language as well as I would like, to be quite honest. Well, I wouldn't worry about that too much, Maya, because TCM is one way of speaking about it. It's a way that those of us that learned here in the States learn to speak that, I'm going to call it a dialect. But some things just don't translate, which is why you read them in the original language. It sounds to me like you may have aspects of how you work and how you think, and they just plain don't translate. That's not a deficiency. That's just the nature of things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's because I do translate for acupuncturists wanting to learn Japanese acupuncture and question. And I do teach it as well, that there's this continual drive within me that if I can just say this better, if I can translate this better, that I maybe be able to transmit what's actually written in the Japanese language more effectively so people can learn it better, I think. I suspect that you can, but I wouldn't worry about translating it into TCM. I would worry about translating it into a person's sort of palpable, knowable, livable experience, like translate it into how they think and how they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I strive to do, but, you know, you can always do that. Translation is a tricky thing. Like how much are you translating? How much are you transmitting? How much are you kind of speaking around it? Because you can't do it quite directly. Mm -mm -mm. And I think too, at one point I was friends with a professional translator. That's all he did. And I think he said it really well. Because I, I think all of us, you know, we're learning this medicine, whether it's TCM or Chinese classical or Japanese, you know, or Korean, we're learning this medicine really that originated in a language that's not our own. So except for perhaps five element worsley, slightly different, perhaps. But, you know, I think when it comes down to it, translating something word for word is not necessarily translating the essence of what's in those words and what those are trying to transmit, you know, and there's so many different ways to say the same thing and to think about the same thing. And yeah, it's um, still, you can always strive to do better so that other way, other people can study better. You know, It's a moving target. That's for sure. So before we jumped on this conversation, we we're chatting for a few minutes, trying to get the sound right and all that. 
And you mentioned about how much you absolutely love moxibustion, especially for treating kids. Your eyes just lit up. Yeah, it's, I mean, I love all aspects of Japanese medicine, but I think moxibustion itself is a, I mean, it's just unfortunate because I think sometimes it's treated like the bastard child of, of acupuncture. It's not really given its due right in the medicine, especially in TCM education. And it's just so incredibly powerful, not only for kids, but for everybody, you know, and there's just things that you can definitely do with moxa that you cannot achieve with acupuncture. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a magical substance. I remember being introduced to moxa with that stinky cigar, crappy moxa. And here, this is going to help tonify, you know, chi and blood and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, this shit's going to give me cancer. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I teach a, a brief series of moxa classes at the the local acupuncture school here in, in Colorado at CSTCM, which is really an abbreviated version of like the whole moxa instruction that I do within Shink University. And one of the very first things I do is I, I'll teach them half grain moxa, not rolling with boards, but actually rolling with your fingers. Because how I was taught in Japan, at least, you the boards were originally created for patients to roll their moxa, not for the practitioners to roll their moxa. And so that's how I, I, I'm like, you're going to be a practitioner, you're going to learn this. And so I spend the first two and a half hours of a three hour class or whatever, just working on that. And then for the last like 15 minutes of class, we do pull moxa and then we never do it again because it's so stinky and it's so ineffective and um, man, it just smells really bad. <laughs> so. Yeah, it does. I agreed. And for, I was going to say for folks like me who have bad lungs, it's, it, it's just not doable. It's not sustainable in the long run. Now you said you can do things with moxa that you can't do with acupuncture. And, and I suspect there's some acupuncturists listening to this that are rolling up their sleeves and like itching for a fight. Like, Oh yeah, show me. Tell me, first of all, how do you see moxa in acupuncture as being different? Well, so I think it's stated pretty clearly. This is what my teachers always told me, that moxa is very, very efficient to move and to break down toxins or doku, what we call in Japanese, deep within the body. But unlike acupuncture, you don't have to ever puncture the skin, even if you're just using shonishin, right, which is still on the surface of the skin. So I think that in itself is very unique. And then I think on the other hand, too, moxa works on a completely different level in the body, if you were to think of it in a Western medical way, than acupuncture does. So acupuncture, we're really working with nerve pain responses, when we insert, even if there isn't pain with insertion, it's a nerve response that we're getting, you know, higher white blood cell production, a more efficient immune system, better blood flow to the area, helping the body to go from flight and fight into rest and relaxation. All of those systems are the same, but with moxibustion, it's actually happening through a heat shock protein response. So it's actually happening on a cellular level. And this is proven in Western science through some studies that were done over in Japan that the cells themselves create this heat shock protein 
that initiates all of these things happening in the body and then increases theirs. They've actually proven that, and I'd have to research for which studies they were because I learned it from a teacher over there, that when you use moxa, you actually get a higher white blood cell production than you would with acupuncture. So even in a Western medical sense, it's definitely more effective and it definitely has those reactions in different ways. And when I see it with my clients, you know, it's just so difficult, I think, for most people to really truly tonify with acupuncture needles. I think it's really, really difficult unless you're an amazing technician with your acupuncture. But with moxibustion, it's not as difficult because you're literally using heat, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, but it's definitely different as a substance. In particular, kids and moxa. I mean, is doing moxa on kids different than doing it on adults? Is there is there something different in the way that you work, or do you see different effects with children than you do with adults? I don't know if it, this is particularly specific only to moxa, because I use moxa in combination with both shonishin, what I call acutherapy. For those of you who don't know, shonishin literally means acupuncture without the puncture. It's acupuncture for kids. So I use moxa in relation with shonishin or with adults, I'll use it with my acupuncture needles. Saying that though, I, I don't really think there's a difference between the moxa and the acupuncture, more so kids in particular are just so much quicker to respond to treatment, I think would be the biggest difference. But I don't think that's specific to moxa. I mean, I absolutely love treating kids because they don't have the baggage that adults come with, you know, like there's no, I mean, like a prime example, like my daughter will come in and my every little ache and pain that my daughter has, she'll come in and tell me about it. And she'll be like, mom, my leg hurts right here. And I'll usually, if I'm in the middle of a day and, you know, I have four kids and I work and I teach and all of this stuff and I'm like, okay, whatever, let's just stick some moxa on it. And we, I usually just use the stick on moxa because it's easy and quick. Um, and I'll stick on a cone of moxa and, you know, three minutes later, she's like, oh, it's gone. And then she runs off and goes plays and goes and plays. You know, there's no identification, I guess, is the best word uh, with the illness. Whereas I think when people get to the age of 12, 15, or maybe a little bit older, they start to really identify like I am Crohn's disease. You know, I have Crohn's and therefore I am, <laughs> you know, like, whereas kids don't have that, you know, a little baby with acid reflux and constipation will come in. And if the treatment works, it works. There's no mental to get in the way. So. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do Channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews 2024. 
click on the Jump to Free Teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Anne Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. That's interesting. So, and I've heard other practitioners talk about this, and I've seen this in my clinic myself, where people come in and there's a whole story that goes with their air quotes illness. The whole story. And that story goes deep into their identity. Identity is such a big thing these days anyway, right? It's like the toxin of the day, it seems, actually. So I'd, I'd love to get your, your thought about like identity, like how we make an identity, how we make a self, how we make a story, and how that connects with problems that we take to an acupuncturist. Well, I think, so my teacher, my the main teacher of my group, Yashinomichi uh, Yoko Dokampu Sensei, explains it really, really well in that he says, oftentimes, if someone has a really difficult disease, sometimes he doesn't even want them to get a diagnosis unless he thinks that Western medicine can help them. And the reason for that is just what you were saying, because they start to latch on to that diagnosis and really like weave it into the fabric of their being and unweaving that is so difficult. Um, and I'm sure everyone who's listening has had this experience with a really chronic patient who has something that's really horrible for them and trying to unweave it. And, you know, something that I see often with my kid patients is that, uh, for example, I have a, a young patient who uh, got diagnosed with pediatric rheumatoid arthritis when she was three. And she had constant pain until she came to see me when she was eight or nine. And within the first treatment, I treated her where she tended to have pain, which was in her knee. And I was like, okay, how's the pain? Pain's gone. It's good. Her mom, though, was like, are you sure? Are you lying? Are you sure you don't have pain? You must have pain. So the mom, as the adult, had taken on this identity for her child and created this identity of her child as having pain all the time. Whereas the eight-year-old was like, pain's gone, I'm good, let's go. Let's get out of here. You know, and um, at this point in my treatment with that kid, it's almost more trying to convince the mother that the pain's not going to come back because her kid has, has been pain-free, got released from her endocrinologist, you know, months ago. And now it's almost trying to convince the mom. And I think when we treat adults, especially with especially with chronic illnesses, one of my teachers, when I very first started acupuncture school, one of the very first classes I took, they brought out all of the tools of acupuncture and put them on the table in the front of the classroom. And they asked, all right, what do you guys think is the most important tool in an acupuncturist toolbox? And someone's like, oh, it's the acupuncture needles. Another person's like, it's definitely the moxa. You know, we can't practice herbs in Japan, so they didn't say herbs. But, you know, another person's like, it's your hands. You need to have great hands to be an acupuncturist. And the teacher was like, you know what? You're all wrong. It's your what they call your mouth needle. That's the literal translation. They call it your mouth needle, which I think we would translate into English as the ability to talk to a client, almost therapy, right? Because that is really what helps to unbind that from their identity is helping to convince them not only physically, but also through that emotional connection to unbind it from them, you know, and, and show them that they can be a human being without their pain and without their illness. 
being a human being without our pain. A lot of people come to us because of their pain. And rightly so. And acupuncture is famous for helping with pain. But so often the pain that people have, it is, it's so core in some ways to who they think they are that disentangling from that, now that leaves people really untethered in a sense. And and as I listen to you talking about that young patient, her juvenile rheumatoid arthritis basically gone, not gone for mom, I suspect you see this a lot, especially with treating kids, that really you kind of have to treat the parent through the child. Is that is that fair? Or is that just some cases or No, I definitely think it's fair. And you know, there's a lot of times when I tell the parent, hey, whenever you're ready to hop on my table, you let me know. Because the parent needs treatment too. But you know, sometimes it's the actual physical act of treating them. For example, I have a client who wakes up six, seven, eight, nine times a night. Um, and her mom came to me because she had, you know, was developing postpartum depression. And the mom comes to me and I say, well, that's great, but I can't really help you until I help your kids sleep. I had to literally put my hands on the child to literally treat the parent in a physical way. And then I think there's times too when, again, you need to show the parent that their child can be a person without the illness, you know, and that's very difficult for some parents because they've been dealing with problems since they were born, you know, baby went in the ICU the first day, you know, had tubes sticking out of them for the first six months, you know, and that's, I think for adults becomes very traumatic for us. There's an idea in our medicine about the three causations of disease. Have you ever heard about this? Yeah, so there's like three main causes of disease that we learn about in Japanese medicine. So the first is inner, what you could call the um, what we do to ourselves, right? We eat too much, we eat too little, have too much sex, work too much, you know, all the things that we do to ourselves, um, eat the wrong foods and all of that. Outer, you can't do anything about. Outer is trauma, right? You get hit by a car. You can't help that you got your leg broken and then you have depression because your leg's broken and you can't move. But the third one is what they call the neither category, but it's really emotional. You know, the emotional causation of disease, which this whole industry of therapy and psychology has been created on, has been within our medicine for thousands of years and was actually considered the most difficult thing to treat of those three categories. You know, this emotional causation. And, you know, when we talk about this identity with our illness, I think we can't not talk about how that identity is perhaps feeding into the illness, perhaps causing other illnesses and other in, uh, issues within the body. And then how do we also address the emotional through our actual acupuncture and moxibustion only, you know, and with this mouth needle, you know, the communication that I was referencing before. I think that's such a great question. We have our own ideas of Western psychology and talk therapy and all that, which, which, you know, it's got its place for sure. But our job is not to be talk therapists. 
in, in the same way that someone who's trained in psychology um, or psychotherapy is to do it. For sure, we have to connect with our patients. That's super important. That's vital. Otherwise, we don't know how to treat them. But it seems to me that we're working on a whole different level with emotions than simply, maybe that's being dismissive to say simply, simply talking about it. Well, I think it requires you to have the belief, perhaps, that emotions are not stored simply as a non-physical substance in the brain, but that emotions are stored physically as a presentation within the physical body. I mean, how many times, I don't know about you, but when I get stressed out, there's a little place in between my shoulder blades, right behind my heart, that always gets really, really tight. I call him my little drunk dude that he just hangs out there. When I get stressed, he gets really angry. You know, like we all have our places. Like I got stressed out and my neck always hurts when I get stressed or whatever, you know, like, or you have anxiety and you feel that tension and tightness in your chest, right? There's the physical presentation of emotion is something that our medicine can definitely address. It's if you know how to address it, I think is the more, the harder thing really. So how do we go about addressing it? Talk to me a little bit about the how. Well, I mean, that's stylistic when it comes down to it, right? But I think it comes back to this really foundational idea, you know, in that I was just talking at a conference at the local um, Colorado Acupuncture Association conference about palpation and about how palpation can be so important. And I think in order to adequately address the physical representations of emotion or of anything really in the body, you have to accurately be able to palpate it, diagnose it, and then have the correct technique to approach it, right? And those three components, I think, are pretty foundational and central to all Japanese acupuncture styles, not only to the one I practice, Yashinomichi. I mean, that's the same for Japanese meridian therapy, and any other style that I really witnessed, actually. But I think that the palpation in particular, and then this technique, is not as heavily taught or regarded, perhaps, in TCM, in most TCM that I've witnessed, at least. I think the diagnostics are, man, TCM practitioners are amazing. Like, you guys can diagnose anything. You just, you got that diagnosis down, (laughs) but like the palpation, at least from what I've witnessed so far, and there's always variations, but being able to subtly palpate the Wei Qi all the way down to the nutritive and all, you know, understanding what cold and heat feels like and what this idea of Japanese called Jaki, um, which is Shechi or pernicious ki, what's often written as a evil element in classic in classic texts like the Shanghan Lun, being able to palpate that and then address it with your technique and adequately address it so that when you palpate again, it's gone. This is, I think that's really difficult. You know, that takes time, a lot of practice. I would agree it takes time and practice. And by and large, it's not taught in TCM because that's just, it, that hasn't been a piece of that tradition. There's, there's other traditions, yes, but... But TCM, not so much. 
Would you say that any sort of emotionally induced, emotionally generated trouble that we store in our body would have a palpatory reference of some sort? It should be able to feel it? I would say so, yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the easiest one to think of is, again, that feeling of anxiety or um, nervousness, right? I think for most of us, I don't know if, correct me, you know, if, if you feel something different, let me know. But for most of us, we feel it in that upper chest from like the Ren 17 upwards, right? And for me, at least, it feels a little almost like fluttery, you know, and anxious. You know, I can't explain it any other way, but it feels anxious in my chest, like heat. Yeah. No, but I, let me let me rephrase that. Is it something that you as a practitioner would be able to palpate? That's what I strive to do. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, like if it was my teachers, I would say, yeah, for 100 percent, you know, 100 percent. That's what they can do. But at this point in my practice, I'm only, I don't know, 12, 15 years in, like there's still so much I, I could develop and I'm sure there's sure, tons of stuff I miss. How do you go about developing that palpatory? I'm going to call it vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, I think initially, as with all things, you should find a good mentor that can teach it to you. Honestly, someone who will teach you not only how it's supposed to feel, but how, what you're doing wrong, what you're looking for, and then be able to correct you when you do it incorrectly, or, you know, like you need that mentorship. But if you don't have that mentorship and you're just trying to go on it on your own, it's a bit of um, a princess in the pea kind of situation. So like trying to put, I like to tell my students to take several different shapes of beans or, you know, pencil lead and put them on the very bottom of a really thick book. You know, maybe you go to the thrift store or something and you buy a really thick book, put it on the very bottom of all of those pages and then try to feel it through the top. So that way you can at least start to feel for a physical difference, right? And then temperature is so important, right? Because we need to understand so many things about the body. We need to understand not only the skin, which I think is often overlooked for most practitioners. They don't understand the quality of the skin the dexterity of the skin, the thickness of the skin, and how that presentation can be screaming at you where the patient needs to be treated. But then also thinking about the different temperatures within the body. For example, um, we have, I think you call it true cold false heat, I believe in TCM, right? And so there's heat on the surface. The surface of the, let's say, stomach is quite hot, but internally they're quite cold and being able to feel, yes, the surface is hot, but internally there's actually cold there. I actually need to tonify, right? Or the opposite. And so feeling for that. And, and I think what more practitioners have experience with is feeling for, you know, like excess muscles or knots in the muscle or ropey muscles. I think these are a little bit more easy to, for most people to practice. For sure. Those are quite notable. I mean, they're very objective and almost anybody could feel that. But you're talking about something far more subtle. And you just mentioned that you you can differentiate cold underneath heat. Yeah. You know, and I wish I could 
claim that this is my invention. <laughs> but, it, but to be honest, well, of course it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know, like I, I'm really not that special because I learned this in acupuncture school. I learned how to palpate for that in school. Palpation. Yeah, you had good mentors. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, I had the teachers to be able to teach me. And, you know, um, the first year I was in acupuncture school at, at Toyoshinkyu, our meridian class where we learned the actual flow of the meridians. Yeah, we had a book, but really we would go into the practice room and we would palpate the meridians from top to bottom, except for maybe like Ren one and do one. Like we didn't maybe palpate down there. That would be a little awkward, but uh, you know, like palpating, like what does the entire liver meridian feel like? Where is its actual flow? Do I have the correct hand weight for palpation? Or am I just doing massage at this point? You know, and then the points we learned as again, an entire year long class, you know, the points we would learn every, you know, every week we would have our point location class and spleen six, this is the point for Japanese acupuncture. This is the point for TCM. And this is the actual live or active point on the patient. This is where you should actually be needling. But this is where, you know, they might test you on it. You know, and understanding that difference, that was taught to me in school. So I was really lucky to develop that in a, in a situation where everyone was learning that and the teachers were also doing that and treating that way. You know, so I just try, my, I'm trying my best to just pass that information on <laughs> if I can. <laughs> Well, I, I hear you talk about this. This is great. I've, I've been in this business for almost 25 years now. It's as interesting today as it was when I first started. I could geek out with you all day. Yeah. And, and I, just, you know, I just heard you talk about, like, we learn the liver channel by palpating it. Sure, you can look in the book, and there's a line in the book, and it goes from here to there, and there's the bones, and blah, blah, blah. And, and is that important? Yes, in a way. But I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, what if I just, like, took a day, or just, like, with each patient? Like, okay, today on every patient, I'm just going to palpate the liver channel, just as part of my diagnostic, mainly because I want to teach myself, like, what's the liver channel feel like? Okay, now I'm doing the spleen channel or the gallbladder channel, you know, whatever, I realize as we're having this conversation, Maya, there's a, a whole little bit that I could add to my initial diagnostic with people simply for my own pure pork pleasure of, I wonder what the liver channel actually feels like. I heard Maya say you could palpate and learn about the liver channel by just palpating the damn thing. And I'm thinking, why don't I just do that? What a great idea. I mean, it definitely makes your intake get a little longer. <laughs> Well, but I, I, I leave room for investigation in my practice. Yeah. You know, I think where it can get even more interesting is when you can take this idea of palpating the skin. And this is what I really love to do um, is palpating the skin in relation to the sickness or illness or whatever is going on with the client. You know, and looking on the skin for the different qualities of the skin. And perhaps because I treat pediatrics, this is where, you know, a kid, you can't deeply palpate them. And a newborn who has 
you know, has issues with their spine or, you know, their, their head is not formed correctly or something, you can't push on that. But what you can feel for is those different qualities of the skin, you know, is the skin dry or rough? Is it thicker? Is it thinner? Is it damp? Is it like rice paper and almost like feels like it'll tear, you know, and all of these qualities, is there heat? Is there cold? Is there that jockey that I mentioned before? And, and then those places are just like, they're screaming at you, please come treat me. You know, I'm different from the rest, you know? And so for me, trying to find that place that's different from the rest is it's like a, like a never ending puzzle game that I get to play. It's so much fun and I can do it on every client and they don't have to know that I'm doing it. And, but it, it's so effective and it's so easy. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So you're investigating the skin to see what's different from the rest. It sounds like a child's game, which of these things doesn't fit. Exactly. But it's, you know, I think this is one of the biggest places where I have a hard time, again, relating to TCM theory. Because for me, our medicine is so beautifully simplistic. You know, my friend and, and one of my mentors here in the state, Jeffrey Dan, said it really well. He said, you know, Japanese acupuncture is like a piece of sashimi or a piece of sushi. You can't get simpler than a piece of raw fish on some rice. You can't get simpler, but it's so exquisitely yummy and oh, so good. And whereas, you know, a really fancy Chinese dish is exquisitely complex, beautifully complex. There's so many flavors and tones and textures and spices, you know. And I think that really translates well to our medicine, you know. Japanese acupuncture is so simplistic. You don't have to have all this complicated theory to help someone make them better. You just have to be present and put your hands on and palpate and feel the place that's different from the rest. I love the image of Japanese acupuncture as fine sushi, that there's a simplicity. And I had a, some acupuncture, some Japanese 
acupuncture training when I was in school. We, we were introduced to a number of different modalities. And I've got friends that do Japanese acupuncture. Um, I've always loved how that particular tradition touches more and thinks less. TCM in particular, very cerebral. And I mean, just, and depending on what stream of medicine you want to follow, you can do some very scholarly, cerebral sort of medicine. There's a place for it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if you're just kind of a, a simple person and you don't do complexity well, which I would definitely fall in that category. I don't do complexity so well. I get confused quickly when you start mixing up logical types and stuff. It's, it's not easy. Being able to go to something simple that makes sense, go, going to what you feel or what you see. So with that in mind, Maya, any advice on how to stay simple and present and connected to touch? And more importantly, how we make sense of what we're perceiving? Easy question, right? Easy question. Hard to answer, honestly. Because, you know, I get this a lot from my students in Shinkyu, and they're consistently trying to move away from that cerebral TCM. But, you know, that's where your foundation is. That's where you're going to feel comfortable, right? That's where you began, and that's that's your place of comfort. And I guess the best way I can give advice there, and this is what I tell my students too, is just treat what you see and see what happens. You know, just put your hands on the patient and treat what you see and don't even think about it. Don't think, oh, they have this liver, chi, whatever, you know, like who cares? They have a stomach ache. What is their body telling you? What do they, what does their stomach say? You know, what does their hara say to you when you palpate the stomach meridian? What is it speaking to you? You know, and then how does, if you can't understand that, fine. How does the skin feel different? How do the muscles feel different? You know? Yeah. I mean, it's really, honestly, being able to palpate and stay present and be with your patient and just treat what you see. It sounds super easy, but it takes, I think it takes a lot of people, a lot of time to let go of being in their heads. Spot on. Exactly. And this is one of the things that I have found over time that in my mind, when I start thinking, oh, according to the theory, because I can make stuff fit the theory, it usually doesn't get me very good clinical results. When I think according to the theory, it means I'm lost. <laughs> That's what I've noticed these days. And so like what I do, I go back to what do I feel? What's the pulse like? What's the skin like? How come it's so soggy and gooey? at spleen nine, right? Or why is it so dry and tight at large intestine 11? There's, I mean, there's all kinds of messages I can get from the body. The question for me becomes, what do I do with that? I can find and notice things. And I love that phrase about treat what you see or treat what you feel. The question I keep coming up with is treat it in what way? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, going back to what you said, I think there's also, you know, 
the Japanese acupuncture approach to diagnostics is flipped from the TCM. I've noticed um, in that with Japanese acupuncture, we take the pulse, we'll look at the tongue, more than likely palpate the hara or the abdomen, you know, palpate the body. And once we feel what the body is saying, then we think, you know, and we already have the points that we want to treat because we've already palpated. And then we say, okay, it is spleen chi deficiency, right? So that diagnostics comes last in the order of progression and really in the order of importance. Whereas TCM tends to be flipped, I think. You know, most people will take the pulse, get their diagnosis after listening perhaps to the symptoms, um, and then maybe they'll palpate for their points or they'll just take their points and go. But, you know, when you you talk about like, okay, I've palpated and I felt, now what? This becomes, unfortunately, a very stylistic approach, right? Because I can tell you what I would do following the Ashinomichi theory and the Ashinomichi kata. But I think what you've studied is probably far different than what I've studied in the style that you practice in and how you address, for example, what we call um, water toxin or damp in the body from my style is not going to be what your style treats. But saying that, you know, like, if it feels soggy and damp at spleen nine, maybe you should tonify in spleen nine. You know, and if it feels rough and excess, or maybe I should excess. tonify something on the Yang Ming channel to dry out that tie-in. See, and this is where it becomes very stylistic. Do you treat the Yang to treat the Yin? Do you treat the front to treat the back, or do you go straight to what you're seeing and treat that, or do you go to an empirical point and treat that through that? You know, it becomes that becomes style. And so I can yeah, tell you, does, how, doesn't it? I can tell you how I would treat it, but it's not necessarily going to be the answer for you. I would love to know how you would treat it, though. Let's say you do find a very soggy, and we're just talking theoretically here. I just I just want to pick your brain and and kind of see how how your synapses work there. But you, you find a very soggy spleen nine. You look and you see there's other issues that have to do with accumulation of water, dampness, maybe some toxicity. Yeah. Then what? Well, yeah, then what? So how the Yashinomichi kata is made, we first do our root treatment on a yin and yang point of the meridians of the arm. And so those points are meant to both start the movement for the issue in the system, but also to create an exit and entry point for key to move through in case we mess up, which we all do it from time to time. And then usually we'll treat the chest, the belly, the yin and yang of the legs, then the back, and then the shoulders. And then we'll finish usually with a point on the legs. But if I have, let's say there is damp presentation or what we call water toxin in the Hara diagnosis, let's say they have ringing in the ears, which is very common with water toxin, and they have dampness on spleen nine, I mean, sure, we could use the very common points of REN12 and stomach 36 and spleen 9 or maybe stomach 40, you know, all those very common points that you would use in TCM. But really what I would do is palpate and find the most live or active point, right? If spleen 9 happened to be the most live active point on the yin channels of the legs, that would be the point that I treat and I would probably tonify it. And then I would Mm -hmm. probably go more than likely to the stomach channel 
if there's an issue with the spleen and all of that, more than likely to the stomach channel and find a live active point there. And so every point, you know, we can have these theories of, yeah, I can use stomach 40 and spleen nine and I can do this and that. But those are really like roundabout GPS coordinates for us to then focus our energy, palpate, find that live point that's actually saying, hey, please treat me and then to treat. And so there's no hard or fast way, no point prescription you know, my friend Erlen Truitt, his teacher said it best. You know, the point in the book is good for the book. The point on the patient is good for the patient. <laughs> the point in the book is good for the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not my phrase. You know, it's not my saying, but, you know, I totally stole it from him. But That's it's so true. good. It's so true. You know, you have to palpate. You have to find the point on the patient that's good for them, for what's happening with them. And, you know, over and above that, it's just, you know not going to help that much. So how do you find the live point? How do you know what a live point is? How does it tell you? I don't think it lights up with like a little LED. That'd be so helpful if it it did. (laughs) Um, Well, it would take, it would take most of the fun out of it. (laughs) It would, it would. Well, I mean, it comes back to your palpation, right? That comes back to palpation and that, you know, I like to split it up into two pretty stark categories just to make it easy initially. You know, we have our excess point and our deficient point. And an excess point, I like to, it kind of feels like a volcano, like erupting. Like key almost feels like it's erupting out of the point. Whereas with a deficient point, it feels like a sinkhole. It feels like the key is caving into the, and it's just like trying to suck in energy and suck in and tonify itself, right? But if you got more complex, you know, there's surrounding a deficient point, there's excess, surrounding the excess, there's deficiency. That's so easy to think of when you have a broken bone, right? The broken bone is the definition of deficiency, right? Because it's broken, it's no longer strong, but surrounding it, all the muscles tighten and create heat and you know pressure in order to keep the bone in place. So we have that deficiency and excess. So you know you can get so complex with that, but really it's just trying to find the point it's either the most excess or the most efficient. And treat accordingly. Yeah. You know, the technique comes with practice. And, you know, that again, that's stylistic. But I don't know. Uh, it sounds like you have some history with Japanese medicine. But, you know, technique and acupuncture in Japan, in Japan and with moxa too, it is quite intricate. You know, there's no... You know, one of the biggest things that I, as a misnomer, I think with moxa in particular in technique is that moxibustion can only be used for tonification, which is untrue. It can be used for dispersion too, right? And it can disperse and then tonify, depending on your technique. And so can your acupuncture, you know? So, but learning those techniques and figuring out which ones sing to you and which ones you love and which ones don't match your hands, and that, that requires... You need, you need to get that mentor. It's just so important to have a really good teacher. I love that phrase that you just said. Find the ones that match your hands. Yeah. I think that's true of your tools. That's true of the style that you practice. That's true of the things that you like to treat, right? And you got to find what matches you. I'm going to say yes and. For sure, there's the things that match us and the things that resonate. Also, as practitioners, as people who are out to help people, probably helpful to go a little bit beyond 
what we're comfortable with. What are the other things that we can acquire that will allow us, allow us to be more helpful to more people? I'm not saying that, that we can do everything for everybody. I'm not saying that. I just, I watch my own mind and there's places where I'm kind of lazy, like, oh, that looks difficult. I don't know if I want to do that. Well, maybe I should learn how to do it because it would actually be useful for my patients, would be useful for me, and I'll develop something that I have potential for, but not at the moment capacity, and it's worth developing capacity. I, you have so much more drive than I do. <laughs> You're impressive. I usually let the universe bring that to me, to be quite honest. You know, at my core, I'm a very simplistic, lazy person. And when the universe tells me I am, and when the universe tells me, really, like, you've got so much, you've got so much stuff up on YouTube. How can you say you're lazy? Oh, you should. Yeah, I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> like, I'm pretty lazy. No, like, at, usually when I need to learn something, I don't know if you've had this experience, but the universe will just send start sending me patients that will force me to learn it, whether I want them or not. Whether I ask for them or not, it'll just start sending them away. <laughs> and, you know, you get that patient like, you know, tennis elbow. And you're like, oh, I hate treating tennis elbow. This is the worst thing. It's so annoying. And then you get six more patients with tennis elbow. And eventually you're like, oh, I got tennis elbow now. And then it tells you, oh, you need to learn bloodletting better now. And, you know, you need to learn bloodletting that happens on this really difficult place, you know, and here's these patients to practice that on, you know, so I just let the universe do it for me. So the universe points it out to you and then you go and learn it. I am kind of forced to, <laughs> so like I have to. You could refer those people to somebody else. I've got people I refer all the time. I'll talk to them on the phone. And I'll go, yeah, I'm actually not the best person to see, but I know someone who is. You know, I, I would say the only time that I really do that is when someone's going through medical fertility treatment. And that's simply because I don't have the current medical knowledge to really treat them adequately. Um, so there's definitely times when I send people off to other practitioners when I think they would be better suited. But, you know, there are times when I, you know, and it's happening more and more lately that I get more and more difficult patients, more chronic patients, more patients that I'm like, man, I got no idea what's going on with you, but let's give it a good try, you know? Mm -hmm. And my general rule of thumb is I, and I tell my patients this all the time, I'm going to treat you, give me three times, right? Mm -hmm. And in three times, if we don't make a significant dent in what's going on for you, let's try to find someone who can, you know? And so I'm really honest about that with my patients. And I think there are times when you do need to refer out. And I think there's times when you just need to do the work and get the skills, you know, and. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. And I think that rubric of three, three treatments is pretty good. Why do I think it's pretty good? Because mostly people will give you three chances. And, and if you're not helping after three, they're, they're just not going to come back anyway. Yeah, they're not going to come anyway. So I, I think it's really useful, in fact, to say, you know, I'm not sure that we can make progress on this. I've got some ideas. Give me three treatments. After three treatments, we'll know if it's helping, how it's helping, how much more you might need or not need. 
and we'll reassess there. I think people love hearing that because otherwise they're like, oh my God, how, how long will I have to see this person? And am I going to have to like ghost them to get the hell out of here? Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, giving your patients accurate expectations of your work, you know, also something that I, I learned in school, but you really need to try to get seven, what my teacher always told me, you need to have 70% efficacy with each treatment. Every treatment that you do, you want to get them 70% better. You don't want them more than 70% because then they're going to go home and the treatment's going to keep working and you might over-treat them if it's over 70%. You sound so much like a Japanese practitioner. Yeah, it's, that's the magic number is 70%. <laughs> I think so too. I've had all my best teachers have said that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that's the magic number. And, you know, they also said, you know, if you can treat someone for three times and they come back for the fourth, then, then they are your patient. But if they come in once or twice and they don't come again, it's more than likely it's because you didn't help them, you know, unless you were like, yeah, I helped. OK, you don't have to see me anymore, you know, which I'm not the kind of practitioner who sees somebody every single month just because I can. You know, there's very few patients that I see on a monthly basis or a weekly basis that are maintenance treatment. I don't really like it's boring. I don't like doing it. <laughs> you know, So I, I don't do it. It's, it's boring. So um, I thought you said you were lazy. Why wouldn't you want that? Because it's so boring, man. Like, it's so boring. <laughs> so boring. Like, there's nothing wrong with them. I'm like, why are you seeing me? I feel like like it's just not it. It's not an equal exchange. It's not you. That's not the way you work. No, it's boring. If someone's good, I'm like, come back when you got something for me. Until then, just do your thing. Yeah. Yeah, catch and release. Yeah, exactly. You know, but that that 70 percent, but then also trying to say, you know, give yourself three tries or, you know, if you're less experienced, give yourself five tries or 10 tries. But be really upfront with your patients and say, look, for this kind of thing, usually it takes me between three and five treatments. This is how much I think I'm going to need to see you. Are you OK with that? And if they say, yes, great, then you've made a deal, you know, and now they're in they're They're in it. They know that you're in it to help them. And. Yeah, it's more mutual. There's more understanding. And I think that, that gets better results. Yeah. And I think having that agreement that you're going to come back and discuss where they are and how they are three or five treatments down the road, it's it's very reassuring. It's like you're paying attention. You know, there's all kinds of practitioners out there that would be happy to make you a patient for life. And, and some people might be looking for that, but a lot of people just want to feel better and get the hell out. I 100% agree, you know, and I know it's a much better financial business model <laughs> to, to see the patient once a month, every month, but I'm not sure it is. I don't know. I don't I'm know. not sure that's true. I know a lot of business coaches recommend that, but that's not how they're I business go. coaches. They're not acupuncturists. Yeah, this is true. Right. Because think about this. If you're really helping people. And you're helping them with things that no one else has helped them with. And they get better. What are they doing when they're not in your clinic? They are gossiping to their friends about you. And their friends are going to come see you. Yeah. I mean, that's how, I mean, my, I don't advertise my clinic. I've only ever run one ad for my whole clinic. It's all word of mouth. I mean, I have a small clinic, but it's good, good size for me, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's all word of mouth and it's so much easier. I mean, again, I'm lazy. So, <laughs> you know, it's just so much easier. You get good results for your patients. They don't 
care if you're a doctor. They don't care if you see 60 patients a day. They care if the neck pain that they came in with is gone. So they can go out and, you know, go dancing or play a golf game with their son. You know, that's the important thing, you know, and and that's what I strive for is to help my patients achieve those results so they can go live their life. You know, I see them in the grocery store. I say hi. <laughs> you look familiar. How do I know? Yeah. I know I know you somewhere. Hi. I know I know you somewhere. Yeah. Well, Miss, especially if you're living in a somewhat small community. You know, I know there's HIPAA and all that. You know, we have to be attentive. But look, if you're an acupuncturist in a small community, you're kind of a known quantity in a way. After a while. Yeah. Well, you know, I live. So I live outside of Denver. You know, 20 minutes outside of Denver. So a really big area. And. I've really created my practice for the place for pediatrics to go to. And so no matter where you go to, even other acupuncturists are recommending their patients' kids to come to me. And so I think even if you're not in a small community, if you can create your your practice as the place to go for pediatrics, for perinatal care, for, you know, whatever, then that's the place that people are going to go to. That's what you know, you, you have to create that niche for yourself. I think that the days of being a jack of all trade and a master of none are over for our profession, unless you do live in a town of 300 and, you know, there's no other acupuncturists. And then maybe you do have to be that jack of all trades. But, you know, I think it, yes, you do need to be able to treat shoulder pain, neck pain, back pain, knee pain, you know, all the top five. And yes, you need to be able to treat, you know, stomach issues and all of that. But I think you should have at least a place that you focus on for your practice. Yeah. Some kind of inquiry that enlivens you. Cool. Well, we're, we're getting close to having to wind this thing down. I've, I've got a new thing. I probably shouldn't say I've got a new thing because I've been saying that lately, but it still is a new thing for me at this point that I'm doing at the end to kind of wind things up just to change the flavor a bit, you know, like after sampling a couple different wines, you want to like, have something to cleanse your palate with? I want to do a little lightning round. A couple of very quick questions. Off the cuff. Hopefully I can answer them. Well, of course you can answer. You're a human being, and these might or might not have to do with Chinese medicine or Japanese medicine or whatever we call this stuff. All right, you ready? Here we go. What book are you reading right now? Shang Han Lun. You know, there's a new Shang Han Lun out there. Did you get it? The new Eastland Press Shang Han Lun? Have I you seen haven't. It? I haven't seen that one. I'm actually reading um, and translating my teacher's version of the Shang Han Lun. Oh, you're such a geek. That sounds great. I really am. I need a pocket protector. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> What's your favorite movie? Ooh, that's a hard one. What about snack food while you're watching that movie? Oh, definitely popcorn. Oh, yes. What do, you, what do you put on your popcorn? Salt or caramel. Either way, I love it. No butter, though. Okay. No butter. No, I love the salt. No butter. I know. I know. I'm kind okay. of weird. Okay. Well, yeah, you are, but you're an acupuncturist. <laughs> All right. What should beginners ignore at the beginning of their practice? Are they still in school or are they out of school? They're out of school. The theory. <laughs> so provocative. I, I, 100%. I don't think the theory is going to help anybody treat. I think your hands are going to help you treat. Treat what you see. 
two weeks in touch. All right. Maya Suzuki, I think that is a good place to put a pin in it for today. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was so nice talking to you. This has been a delight. The people that love us don't want to see us suffer. And so when we have some out-of-the-box idea, some inspiration that aims off the beaten path or, good Lord help us, a calling, then the people that care about us will get nervous. They don't want to see us fail or suffer, which is why it's generally a good idea not to share the big vision aspirations with friends and family. More often than not, they'll try to talk you out of it. It's hard for them to see the capacity that you might develop as you engage your big dreams. Cutting your own trail? It's not supposed to be easy. It's the obstacles and troubles that are the teachers. For sure, we're not capable in the beginning. Nobody is. But if you're tied to your North Star, then at least you know the direction that your heart wants to seek. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.